Lecture 12 in Book 1 by C. H. Spurgeon The Minister's Ordinary Conversation Our subject is to be the minister's common conversation when he mingles with men in general and is supposed to be quiet at his ease. How shall he order his speech among his fellow men? First and foremost, let me say, let him give himself no ministerial airs, but avoid everything which is stilted, official, fussy and pretentious. The Son of Man is a noble title. It was given to Ezekiel and to a greater than he. Let not the ambassador of heaven be other than a Son of Man. In fact, let him remember that the more simple and unaffected he is, the more closely will he resemble that child man, the holy child Jesus. There is such a thing as trying to be too much a minister, and becoming too little a man. Though the more of a true man you are, the more truly will you be what a servant of the Lord should be. Schoolmasters and ministers have generally an appearance peculiarly their own. In the wrong sense, they are not as other men are. They are too often speckled birds, looking as if they were not at home among the other inhabitants of the country, but awkward and peculiar. When I have seen a flamingo gravely stalking along, an owl blinking in the shade, or a stork demurely lost in thought, I have been irresistibly led to remember some of my dignified brethren of the teaching and preaching fraternity, who are so marvellously proper at all times that they are just a shade amusing. They are very respectable, stilted, dignified, important, self-restrained manner is easily acquired. But is it worth acquiring? Theodore Hook once stepped up to a gentleman who was parading the street with great pomposity and said to him, Sir, are you not a person of great importance? But one has felt half inclined to do the same with certain brethren of the cloth. I know brethren who from head to foot, in garb, tone, manner, necktie and boots, are so utterly parsonic that no particle of manhood is visible. One young sprig of divinity must needs go through the streets in a gown, and another of the high church order has recorded it in the newspapers with much complacency that he traversed Switzerland and Italy wearing in all places his beretta, few boys would have been so proud of a fool's cap. None of us are likely to go so far as that in our apparel, but we may do the like by our mannerism. Some men appear to have a white cravat twisted round their souls. Their manhood is throttled with that starched rag. Certain brethren maintain an air of superiority which they think impressive, but which is simply offensive and eminently opposed to their pretensions as followers of the lowly Jesus. The proud Duke of Somerset intimated his commands to his servants by signs, not condescending to speak to such base beings. His children never sat down in his presence, and when he slept in the afternoon, one of his daughters stood on each side of him during his august slumbers. When proud Somersets get into the ministry, they affect dignity in other ways, almost equally absurd. Stand by, I am holier than thou, is written across their foreheads. A well-known minister was once rebuked by a sublime brother for his indulgence in a certain luxury, and the expense was made a great argument. 
Well, well, he replied, there may be something in that. But remember, I do not spend half so much upon my weakness as you do in starch. That is the article I am deprecating. That dreadful ministerial starch. If you have indulged in it, I would earnestly advise you to go and wash in Jordan seven times and get it out of you, every particle of it. I am persuaded that one reason why our working men so universally keep clear of ministers is because they abhor their artificial and unmanly ways. If they saw us, in the pulpit and out of it, acting like real men and speaking naturally like honest men, they would come around us. Baxter's remark still holds good. The want of a familiar tone and expression is a great fault in most of our deliveries, and that which we should be very careful to amend. The vice of the ministry is that ministers will personificate the gospel. We must have humanity along with our divinity if we would win the masses. Everybody can see through affectations, and people are not likely to be taken in by them. Fling away your stilts, brethren, and walk on your feet. Doff your ecclesiasticism and array yourselves in truth. Still a minister, wherever he is, is a minister, and should recollect that he is on duty. A policeman or a soldier may be off duty, but a minister never is. Even in our recreations we should still pursue the great object of our lives, for we are called to be diligent in season and out of season. There is no position in which we may be placed, but the Lord may come with the question, What doest thou here, Elijah? And we ought to be able at once to answer, I have something to do for thee, even here, and I am trying to do it. The bow, of course, must be at times unstrung, or else it will lose its elasticity. But there is no need to cut the string. I am speaking at this time of the minister in times of relaxation, and I say that even then... He should conduct himself as the ambassador of God, and seize opportunities of doing good. This will not mar his rest, but sanctify it. A minister should be like a certain chamber which I saw at Bewley, in the New Forest, in which a cobweb is never seen. It is a large lumber room and is never swept, yet no spider ever defiles it with the emblems of neglect. It is roofed with chestnut, and for some reason, I know not what, spiders will not come near that wood by the year together. The same thing was mentioned to me in the corridors of Winchester School. I was told no spiders ever come here. Our minds should be equally clear of idle habits. On our public rests for porters in the City of London, you may read the words, Rest, but do not loiter, and they contain advice worthy of our attention. I do not call the dolce far niente laziness. There is a sweet doing of nothing which is just the finest medicine in the world for a jaded mind. When the mind gets fatigued and out of order, to rest it is no more idleness than sleep is idleness, and no man is called lazy for sleeping the proper time. It is far better to be industriously asleep than lazily awake. Be ready to do good even in your resting times and in your leisure hours, and so be really a minister, and there will be no need for you to proclaim that you are so. The Christian minister out of the pulpit should be a sociable man. He is not sent into the world to be a hermit or a monk of La Trappe. It is not his vocation to stand on a pillar all day above his fellow men 
like that hare-brained Simon Stylites of olden time. You are not to warble from the top of a tree like an invisible nightingale, but to be a man among men, saying to them, I also am as you are in all that relates to man. Salt is of no use in the box. It must be rubbed into the meat, and our personal influence must penetrate and season society. Keep aloof from others, and how can you benefit them? Our master went to a wedding and ate bread with publicans and sinners, and yet was far more pure than those sanctimonious Pharisees, whose glory was that they were separate from their fellow men. Some ministers need to be told that they are of the same species as their hearers. It is a remarkable fact, but we may as well state it, that bishops, canons, archdeacons, prebendaries, rural deans, rectors, vicars, and even archbishops are only men, after all. And God has not railed off a holy corner of the earth to serve as a chancel for them, to abide therein by themselves. It would not be amiss if there could be a revival of holy talk in the churchyard and the meeting-yard. I like to see the big yew-trees outside our ancient churches with seats all round them. They seem to say, "'Sit down here, neighbour, and talk upon the sermon.' Here comes the pastor, he will join us, and we will have a pleasant, holy chat. It is not every preacher we would care to talk with, but there are some whom one would give a fortune to converse with for an hour. I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend, a man upon whose doorstep you read Salve, welcome, and feel that there is no need of that Pompeian warning, Cave Canum, beware of the dog. Give me the man around whom the children come, like flies around a honeypot. They are first-class judges of a good man. When Solomon was tried by the Queen of Sheba as to his wisdom, the rabbis tell us that she brought some artificial flowers with her, beautifully made and delicately scented, so as to be facsimiles of real flowers. She asked Solomon to discover which were artificial and which were real. The wise man bade his servants open the window, and when the bees came in they flew at once to the natural flowers, and cared nothing for the artificial. So you will find that children have their instincts, and discover very speedily who is their friend, and depend upon it the children's friend is one who will be worth knowing. Have a good word to say to each and every member of the family, the big boys, and the young ladies, and the little girls, and everybody. No one knows what a smile and a hearty sentence may do. A man who is to do much with men must love them and feel at home with them. An individual who has no geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. I have met somewhere with the observation that to be a popular preacher one must have bowels. I fear that the observation was meant as a mild criticism upon the bulk to which certain brethren have attained, but there is truth in it. A man must have a great heart if he would have a great congregation. His heart should be as capacious as those noble harbours along our coast, which contain sea-room for a fleet. When a man has a large, loving heart, men go to him as ships to a haven, and feel at peace when they have anchored under the lee of his friendship. Such a man is hearty in private as well as in public, 
His blood is not cold and fishy, but he is warm as your own fireside. No pride and selfishness chill you when you approach him. He has his doors all open to receive you, and you are at home with him at once. Such men I would persuade you to be, every one of you. The Christian minister should also be very cheerful. I don't believe in going about like certain monks whom I saw in Rome, who salute each other in sepulchral tones and convey the pleasant information, Brother, we must die. To which lively salutation each lively brother of the order replies, Yes, brother, we must die. I was glad to be assured upon such good authority that these lazy fellows are about to die. Upon the whole, it is about the best thing they can do, but till that event occurs, they might use some more comfortable form of salutation. No doubt there are some people who will be impressed by the very solemn appearance of ministers. I have heard of one who felt convinced that there must be something in the Roman Catholic religion from the extremely starved and pinched appearance of a certain ecclesiastic. Look, said he, how the man is worn to a skeleton by his daily fastings and nightly vigils, how he must mortify his flesh. Now the probabilities are that the emaciated priest was labouring under some internal disease, which he would have been heartily glad to be rid of, and it was not conquest of appetite, but failure in digestion, which has so reduced him or possibly a troubled conscience, which made him fret himself down to the light weights. Certainly I have never met with a text which mentions prominence of bone as an evidence of grace. If so, the living skeleton should have been exhibited not merely as a natural curiosity, but as the standard of virtue. Some of the biggest rogues in the world have been as mortified in appearance as if they had lived on locusts and wild honey. It is a very vulgar error to suppose that a melancholy countenance is the index of a gracious heart. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. Not levity and frothiness, but a genial, happy spirit. There are more flies caught with honey than with vinegar, and there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven in his face than by one who bears Tartarus in his looks. Young ministers, and indeed all others, when they are in company, should take care not to engross all the conversation. They are quite qualified to do so, no doubt. I mean from their capacity to instruct and readiness of utterance. But they must remember that people do not care to be perpetually instructed. They like to take a turn in the conversation themselves. Nothing pleases some people so much as to let them talk and it may be for their good to let them be pleased. I spent an hour one evening with a person who did me the honour to say that he found me a very charming companion, and most instructive in conversation. Yet I do not hesitate to confess that I said scarcely anything at all, but allowed him to have the talk to himself. By exercising patience, I gained his good opinion, and an opportunity to address him on other occasions. A man has no more right at table to talk all than to eat all. We are not to think ourselves Sir Oracle, before whom no dog must open his mouth. No, let all the company contribute of their stores, and they will think all the better of the godly words with which you will try to season the discourse. 
There are some companies into which you will go, especially when you are first settled, where everybody will be awed by the majesty of your presence, and people will be invited because the new minister is to be there. Such a position reminds me of the choicest statuary in the Vatican. A little room is screened off, a curtain is drawn, and lo, before you stands the great Apollo. If it be your trying lot to be the Apollo of the little party, put an end to the nonsense. If I were the Apollo, I should like to step right off the pedestal and shake hands all round, and you had better do the same. For sooner or later the fuss they make about you will come to an end, and the wisest course is to end it yourself. Hero worship is a kind of idolatry and must not be encouraged. Heroes do well when they, like the apostles at Lystra, are horrified at the honours done to them, and run in among the people crying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. Ministers will not have to do it long, for their foolish admirers are very apt to turn round upon them, and if they do not stone them nearly to death, they will go as far as they dare in unkindness and contempt. While I say do not talk all and assume an importance which is mere imposture, still do not be a dummy. People will form their estimate of you and your ministry by what they see of you in private, as well as by your public deliverances. Many young men have ruined themselves in the pulpit by being indiscreet in the parlour, and have lost all hope of doing good by their stupidity or frivolity in company. Don't be an inanimate log. At Antwerp Fair, among the many curiosities advertised by huge paintings and big drums, I observed a booth containing a great wonder, to be seen for a penny a head. It was a petrified man. I did not expend the amount required for admission, for I had seen so many petrified men for nothing, both in and out of the pulpit, lifeless, careless, destitute of common sense and altogether inert, though occupied with the weightiest business which man could undertake. Try to turn the conversation to profitable use. Be sociable and cheerful and all that, but labour to accomplish something. Why should you sow the wind or plough a rock? Consider yourself, after all, as being very much responsible for the conversation which goes on where you are, for such is the esteem in which you will usually be held that you will be the helmsman of the conversation. Therefore steer it into a good channel. Do this without roughness or force. Keep the points of the line in good order, and the train will run on to your rails without a jerk. Be ready to seize opportunities adroitly, and lead on imperceptibly in the desired track. If your heart is in it and your wits are awake, this will be easy enough, especially if you breathe a prayer for guidance. I shall never forget the manner in which a thirsty individual once begged of me upon Clapham Common. I saw him with a very large truck, in which he was carrying an extremely small parcel, and I wondered why he had not put the parcel into his pocket and left the machine at home. I said, it looks odd to see so large a truck for so small a load. He stopped, and looking me seriously in the face, he said, yes, sir, it is a very odd thing, but do you know, I've met with an odder thing than that this very day. I've been about working and sweating all this here blessed day, 
until now I haven't met a single gentleman that looked as if he'd give me a pint of beer till I saw you. I considered that turn of the conversation very neatly managed, and we with a far better subject upon our minds ought to be equally able to introduce the topic upon which our heart is set. There was an ease in the man's manner which I envied, for I did not find it quite so simple a matter to introduce my own topic to his notice. Yet if I had been thinking as much about how I could do him good as he had about how to obtain a drink, I feel sure I should have succeeded in reaching my point. If by any means we may save some, we must, like our Lord, talk at table to good purpose. Yes, and on the margin of the well, and by the road, and on the seashore, and in the house, and in the field. To be a holy talker for Jesus might be almost as fruitful an office as to be a faithful preacher. Aim at excellence in both exercises, and if the Holy Spirit's aid be called in, you will attain your desire. Here, perhaps, I may insert a canon, which nevertheless I believe to be quite needless, in reference to one of the honourable brethren, whom I am now addressing. Do not frequent rich men's tables to gain their countenance, and never make yourself a sort of general hanger-on at tea-parties and entertainments. Who are you that you should be dancing attendance upon this wealthy man and the other, when the Lord's poor, his sick people, and his wandering sheep require you? To sacrifice the study to the parlour is criminal. To be a tout for your church and waylay people at their homes, to draw them to fill your pews, is a degradation to which no man should submit. To see ministers of different sects fluttering round a wealthy man like vultures round a dead camel is sickening. Deliciously sarcastic was that famous letter from an old and beloved minister to his dear son, upon his entrance into the ministry, the following extract from which hits our present point. It is said to have been copied from the Smell Fungus Gazette, but I suspect our friend Paxton Hood knows all about its authorship. Keep also a watchful eye on all likely persons, especially wealthy or influential, who may come to your town. Call upon them and attempt to win them over by the devotions of the drawing-room to your cause. Thus you may most efficiently serve the master's interests. People need looking after, and the result of a long experience goes to confirm my conviction, long cherished, that the power of the pulpit is trifling compared with the power of the parlour. We must imitate and sanctify, by the word of God and prayer, the exercises of the Jesuits. They succeeded not by the pulpit so much as by the parlour. In the parlour you can whisper, you can meet people on all their little personal private ideas. The pulpit is a very unpleasant place, of course, it is the great power of God and so on, but it is the parlour that tells, and a minister has not the same chance of success if he be a good preacher as if he is a perfect gentleman. Nor in cultivated society has any man a legitimate prospect of success if he is not, whatever he may be, a gentleman. I have always admired Lord Shaftesbury's character of St Paul in his characteristics, that he was a fine gentleman. And I would say to you, be a gentleman. Not that I need to say so, but am persuaded that only in this way can we hope for the conversion of our growing, wealthy middle classes. We must show 
that our religion is the religion of good sense and good taste, and that we disapprove of strong excitements and strong stimulants. And, oh, my dear boy, if you would be useful, often in your closet make it a matter of earnest prayer that you may be proper. If I were asked what is your first duty, be proper, and your second, be proper, and your third, be proper. Those who remember a class of preachers who flourished fifty years ago will see the keenness of the satire in this extract. The evil is greatly mitigated now. In fact, I fear we may be drifting into another extreme. In all probability, sensible conversation will sometimes drift into controversy, and here many a good man runs upon a snag. The sensible minister will be particularly gentle in argument. He, above all men, should not make the mistake of fancying that there is force in temper and power in speaking angrily. A heathen who stood in a crowd in Calcutta, listening to a missionary disputing with a Brahmin, said he knew which was right, though he did not understand the language. He knew that he was in the wrong who lost his temper first. For the most part, that is a very accurate way of judging. Try to avoid debating with people. State your opinion and let them state theirs. If you see that a stick is crooked and you want people to see how crooked it is, lay a straight rod down beside it. That will be quite enough. But if you are drawn into controversy, use very hard arguments and very soft words. Frequently you cannot convince a man by tugging at his reason, but you can convince him by winning his affections. The other day I had the misery to need a pair of new boots, and though I bade the fellow make them as large as canoes, I had to labour fearfully to get them on. With a pair of boot-hooks I toiled like the men on board the vessel with Jonah, but all in vain. Just then my friend put in my way a little French chalk, and the work was done in a moment. Wonderfully coaxing was that French chalk. Gentlemen, always carry a little French chalk with you into society. A neat packet of Christian persuasiveness, and you will soon discover the virtues of it. And lastly, with all his amiability, the minister should be firm for his principles, and bold to avow and defend them in all companies. When a fair opportunity occurs, or he has managed to create one, let him not be slow to make use of it. Strong in his principles, earnest in his tone, and affectionate in heart, let him speak out like a man, and thank God for the privilege. There need be no reticence, there should be none. The maddest romances of spiritualists, the wildest dreams of utopian reformers, the silliest chit-chat of the town and the vainest nonsense of the frivolous world demand a hearing and get it. And shall not Christ be heard? Shall his message of love remain untold for fear we should be charged with intrusion or accused of cant? Is religion to be tabooed? the best and noblest of all themes, forbidden? If this be the rule of any society, we will not comply with it. If we cannot break it down, we will leave the society to itself, as men desert a house smitten with leprosy. We cannot consent to be gagged. There is no reason why we should be. We will go to no place where we cannot take our master with us. While others take liberty to sin, 
we shall not renounce our liberty to rebuke and warn them. Wisely used, our common conversation may be a potent means for good. Trains of thought may be started by a single sentence which may lead to the conversion of persons whom our sermons have never reached. The method of buttonholing people or bringing the truth before them individually has been greatly successful. This is another subject and can hardly come under the head of common conversation, but we will close by saying that it is to be hoped that we shall never, in our ordinary talk, any more than in the pulpit, be looked upon as nice sort of persons, whose business it is to make things agreeable all round, and who never by any possibility cause uneasiness to anyone, however ungodly their lives may be. Such persons go in and out among the families of their hearers and make merry with them when they ought to be mourning over them. They sit down at their tables and feast at their ease when they ought to be warning them to flee from the wrath to come. They are like that American alarum I have heard of, which was warranted not to wake you if you did not wish it to do so. Be it ours to sow, not only in the honest and good soil, but on the rock and on the highway, and at the last great day to reap a glad harvest. May the bread which we cast upon the waters, in odd times and strange occasions, be found again after many days. Amen.